Good evening, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. This is our weekly live uh, episode of Crime Talk that we do every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. So once again, thanks for joining us. For those who for those of you that have not joined us in the past, my name is Scott Reich. I am a practicing criminal defense attorney and um, coming up on 28 years, 27 right now, coming up on 28 years of doing primarily criminal defense work. And so if it's come up in the practice of law, I've probably had a case similar to that, and I can at least explain it to you as to what is taking place. Now, one of the reasons why we started this channel several years ago was in regards to the Chris Watts case, frankly, because I was so upset that there were people on the news talking about things they didn't know what they were talking about, and they didn't know the difference between an arraignment and a preliminary hearing. And there is a big difference. And for those of you that watch, you know the difference. So we've started the channel. We've done very, very well. I want to thank each and every one of you for uh, subscribing. And you know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment. We'll try to get to them. But we have a lot to discuss this evening. And you may say, Scott, you sound a little stuffed up. Yes, I do. A little bit of a head cold. But that's okay. We're going to get through this. Okay? We're not going to a little head cold uh, get in the way of bringing you the information that you would like to talk about. Now you may say, Scott, what are we going to talk about? Is there something new going on in the world? I mean, we know in the Moscow, Idaho, University of Idaho uh, killings that, well, the police got nothing up there. And it took, what, five years uh, for the police in Indiana to arrest somebody for the Delphi murders? Well, after much ado, and I would say much ado about nothing, the affidavit was released. And as a practicing criminal defense attorney, if I had this client, if I had Mr. Richard Allen as my client, I would be saying the same thing uh, that his defense attorney said after their first appearance, which was, that's pretty weak. And we'll talk about why it's weak. And there's one thing. We now know how the young ladies died. And we now know what the evidence is that led them back to Mr. Allen. And um, when the police say that there's a match to the weapon used, color me skeptical on that, okay? Um, because most firearms experts will say, yeah, we can't do an exact match. We can do a, the most. And basically, we can narrow it down to a particular firearm. But in the days of today's of mass, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Mass um, production of, of, of firearms, they have a lot of the almost exact same characteristics we're not like we're building it in the backyard or anything. It's all mass produced. So shall we get to it? Now, first, let's start with the court's order. And I have it here in my hot little hands. And uh, the court, to its credit, released the affidavit with little to no redactions. Basically, what was redacted were the witnesses that were interviewed that were basically uh, near the uh, bridge at the uh, time of the alleged incident, and um, not not much uh, else was redacted at all, if anything. Uh, but we'll read through it because, hey, what's the best way to 
know exactly what's going on, read the source document yourself, right? We try to do a good job. We try to bring it to you, uh, summarize it, but there's some things that are just worth uh, noting. So the court said, um, having reviews this matter, taking it under advisement on November 22nd, and having considered the evidence submitted and the arguments of counsel, um, now denies the state's verified request to prohibit public access to a court record. The court finds that the state has failed to prove by clearing convincing evidence that the affidavit of probable cause and the charging information should be excluded from the public access. That's a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. Clearing convincing evidence. You've got a scale of evidence. You've got probable cause, you know, more likely than not. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest form of proof known in the law. Then you have clear and convincing evidence right here, okay? And the way to remember clear and convincing evidence is, you know, probable cause is enough to get you into court. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest form of proof known in the law, is the standard by which the jury must be satisfied to each and every element of a case before they can find somebody guilty as to each and every element of the uh, offense charged. Clear and convincing evidence, that's the standard where... Let's say if you're a bad parent, someone comes, you know, the state comes to you and say, hey, you know, you're a bad parent. We're going to take your kid away. They usually have to show it by clear and convincing evidence. So you can have your children taken away easier than you can have your liberty taken away um, in the United States. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, we're talking about people's liberty. You can always go see the kids when they turn 18. You can't give somebody their, their, their freedom back. So the judge who I had a good feeling about in the sense that she was going to be fair and follow the law. And I frankly don't understand what the previous judge, what was the guy's name? Judge Diner. This is what he got all freaked out about. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, the court order goes on. The court finds that the public interest is not served by prohibiting access and that the protection and safety of witnesses can be ensured by redacting their names from the affidavit and that the defendant's personal information can be removed from the charging information. Boom. See, that's the problem with courses. Oh, we got to protect witnesses. No one's going to go harm any witness. I mean, you have to have some pretty specific evidence to say they're going to be harmed, actual threats. Okay. So the judge says, we'll just redact the names. Problem solved. And yet the prosecution was like, no, no, we can't do that. And the public were saying, we have a right to know. We have a right to know if our judicial system is working properly. Is it fair? Did they get the right guy? Or maybe they didn't. So as the court notes that the prosecuting attorney submitted charging information and a probable cause affidavit at the November 22nd, 22 hearing, uh, that was redacted, eliminating the witnesses' names and identifying personal information of the defendant. Those documents will be released to the public and made a part of the record of this time. Uh, the original charging affidavit, probable cause, shall remain sealed. It can be done that way. We don't live like China or Russia where they take care of things in some back room and the decisions were already made. Oh, in the name of public interest, public safety, we must, we must not let the little peasants know what's going on out there. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. So the judge did it. Um, and then the court filed uh, two counts. Count one, it says Nicholas um, McClellan, he's the district attorney, uh, being first duly sworn upon his oath. It says that on or about February 13th, 2017, in the county of Carroll, the state of Indiana, Richard M. Allen did kill another human being to wit, 
victim one while committing or attempting to commit kidnapping of victim one, all of which is contrary to the form of the statute in such cases made and provided uh, to wit, uh, Indiana Code, Section 3542-1-1, subparagraph 2, and against the peace and dignity of the state of Indiana. Count two. Same thing. Nicholas McClellan, being first duly sworn upon his oath, says that on about February 13th in Carroll, in the county of Carroll, state of Indiana, Richard M. Allen did kill another human being to wit, victim two while committing or attempting to commit kidnapping of victim two, all against the peace and dignity of the people of the state of Indiana. Now, that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the charging document. That is the elemental offenses that the prosecution must prove. So the DA alleges that on February 13th, 2017, in the county of Carroll, and they'll ask at the trial, was that then and is it now in the county of Carroll, state of Indiana? Why, well, yes, it was. Then they have to prove that it was Richard Allen, not someone to look like him, not someone who just happened to be in the same area, but it was actually him. And that they did it unlawfully without legal permission or justification, kill another human being, obviously the victims in this case. And um, they have to show, uh, obviously, that it was committed unlawfully. And also that there was a committing to attempt to kidnap the uh, children as well, which is uh, usually an aggravating factor. So let's get to the probable cause affidavit. Now, like I said, I'm a firm believer. People have a right to know. And, um, you know, for those that listen on the podcast, which you can find at any of your uh, favorite podcasting apps, we're going to go ahead and uh, read it to you here as well. So let's get uh, to it. State of Indiana, County of Carroll, uh, State of Indiana versus Richard Allen, the uh, case number here, and uh, Delphi, Indiana. It says, I, the undersigned affiant, submit the following information pursuant to Indiana Code Section 35-33-7-2 as a sworn affidavit setting forth the facts and circumstances known to law enforcement of Carroll County as the basis for probable cause to arrest without a warrant or to establish probable cause for the issuance of an arrest warrant of the defendant, that the facts and circumstances described below would be sufficient basis for a person of reasonable caution and prudence to believe that the accused has committed or attempted to commit the offenses described, and that if arrested without a warrant, such would be authorized in accordance under Indiana Code Section 35-33-1-1, which is commonly referred to as a warrantless arrest. Then they come and say, hey, judge, here's the affidavit. Keep this person in custody. Uh, and we go on. It says that the hearsay statements of witnesses contained herein are considered reliable and credible due to the witness's personal knowledge and or corroborated by the totality of these circumstances. Then it begins that on February 14th, 2017, victim one and victim two were found deceased in the woods approximately 0.2 miles northeast of the Monon High Bridge in Carroll County. Their bodies were located on the north side of the Deer Creek. At the time of the Monon High Bridge Trail was approximately one mile gravel trail terminating at the, at the Monon High Bridge. The Monon High Bridge is an abandoned railroad trestle approximately 0.25 miles long spanning the Deer Creek and Deer Creek Valley on the southeast end of the trail approximately 0.7 miles northwest on the trail from the northwest edge of the Monon High Bridge is the Freedom Bridge, 
which is a pedestrian bridge spanning State Road 25. Approximately 350 feet west of Freedom Bridge was a former railroad overpass over Old State Road 25, also known as County Road 300 North. The trail terminates just west of the former railroad overpass. The majority of the trail is a wooded area with a steep embankment on the south side of the trail. The entirety of the trail and the location of the girls' bodies were and are located in Carroll County, Indiana. Got established appropriate jurisdiction and venue. Now, through interviews, reviews of electronic records, and review of video at the Hoosier, at the Hoosier, 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 right? Hoosier, harvester uh, investigators believe victim one and two were dropped off across from the Mears farm at 1.49 p.m. on February 13th 2017 by name has been redacted. The Mears Farm is located on the north side of County Road 300, north near an entrance to the trails. A video from victim number two's phone shows that at 2.13 p.m., victim one and victim two encountered a male subject on the southeast portion of the Monins High Bridge. The male ordered the girls, quote, guys, down the hill, end quote. No witnesses saw them after this time. No outgoing communications were found on victim two's phone after this time. Their bodies were discovered on February 14th, 2017. Now the video recovered from victim two's phone shows victim one walking southeast on the Monin High Bridge while a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. As the male subject approaches victim one and victim two, one of the victims mentions gun. Near the end of the video, a male is seen and heard telling the girls, guys, down the hill. The girls then begin to proceed down the hill and, let me see. Okay, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I lost my, I wanted to mark something here. Okay, going back. The male ordered the gr girls, guys, down the hill. No witnesses saw them after that time. No, uh, no outgoing communications were found on victim two's phone after this time. Their bodies were discovered on February 14th, 2017. The video recovered from victim two's phone shows victim one walking southeast on the Monon High Bridge while a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. As the male subject approaches victim one and two, one of the victim mentions gun. Near the end of the video, a male is seen and heard telling the girls, guys, down the hill. Now, that video may be a key piece of evidence if that's actually Mr. Allen saying, go down the hill. The girls then begin to proceed down the hill and the video ends. A still photograph taken from the video and the guys down the hill audio was subsequently released to the public to assist investigators in identifying the male. Victim one and victim two's death were ruled as homicides. Clothes were found in the Deer Creek belonging to victim one and victim two, south of where their bodies were located. There was also a 40 caliber unspent round less than two feet away from the victim number two's body between victim one and victim two's body. The round was unspent and had extraction marks on it. 
So they found a 40 caliber unspent round there as well. And the round has an unspent extraction mark on it. Keep that in mind as we continue. Interviews were conducted with three juveniles. Not identified and not identified. They advised they were on the Monon High Bridge Trail on February 13th of 2017. They advised they were walking on the trail towards Freedom Bridge to go home when they encountered a male walking from Freedom Bridge toward Monon High Bridge. The unidentified person described the male as, quote, kind of creepy, end quote, and advised he was wearing, quote, like blue jeans, a light, really light blue jacket, and he, his hair was gray, maybe a little brown, and he did not really show his face, end quote. She advised the jacket was a duck canvas type jacket. Then another unidentified individual advised she was, she said, quote, hi, end quote, to the male, but he just glared at them. She recalled him being in a all black and had something covering his mouth. She described him as, quote, not very tall, end quote, with a bigger build. She said he was not bigger than 5'10". Unidentified individual advised he was wearing a black hoodie, black jeans, and black boots. She stated he had his hands in his pockets. Unidentified individuals were shown investigators' photographs uh, she took on her phone while she was on the trail that day. The photographs include a photo of the Monon High Bridge taken at 12.43 p.m. and another one taken at 1.26 p.m. of the bench east of the Freedom Bridge. The unidentified individual advised after she took the photo of the bench, they started walking towards Freedom Bridge. She advised that when they encountered the man who matched the description of the photograph taken from victim number two's video, An unidentified person described a man she encountered on the trail as wearing a blue or black windbreaker jacket. She advised the jacket had a collar and he had his hood up from the clothing underneath his jacket. She advised he was wearing baggy jeans and was taller than her. She advised she advised her head came up to approximately his shoulder. She advised unidentified person said hi to the man and that he said nothing back. She stated he was walking with a purpose, like he knew where he was going. She stated he had his hands in his pocket and kept his head down. She advised she did not get a good look at his face, but believed him to be a white male. The girls advised after encountering the male, they continued their walk across Freedom Bridge and the old railroad bridge over Old State Road 25. Investigators spoke with an unidentified individual who advised she was on the trail on February 13th of 2017. Video from the Hoosier Harvester captured an unidentified vehicle traveling eastbound at 1.46 p.m. toward the entrance across from Mears Farm. The unidentified individual advised she saw four juvenile females walking on the bridge over Old State Road 25, and she was driving underneath on her way to park. The unidentified person advised that there were no other cars parked across from the Mears Farm when she parked. She advised she walked to the Monon High Bridge and observed a male matching the one from Victim 2's video. 
She described a male she saw as a white male wearing blue jeans and a blue jean jacket. She advised she was standing on the first platform on the Monon High Bridge, approximately 50 feet from her. She advised she turned around at the bridge and continued her walk. She advised approximately halfway between the bridge and the parking area across from Mears Farms, she passed two girls walking towards Monon High Bridge. She advised she believed the girls were victim number one and victim number two. Video from the Hoosier Harvester shows at 1.49 p.m., a white car matching vehicle traveling away from the entrance across from the Mears Farm. The unidentified witness identified, advised she finished her walk and saw no other adults other than the male on the bridge. Her vehicle is seen on the Hoosier Harvester video at 2.14, leaving westbound from the trails. Unidentified witness advised when she was leaving, she noted a vehicle was parked in an odd manner at the Old Child Protective Services building. She said it was not odd for vehicles to be parked there, but she noticed it was odd because of the manner in which it was parked, backed in near the building. Investigators received a tip from an unidentified witness in which he stated he was on his way to Delphi on State Road 25 around 2.10 p.m. on February 13th of 2017. He observed a purple PT Cruiser or a small SUV-type vehicle parked on the south side of the CPS building. He stated it appears as though it was backed in as to conceal the license plate of the vehicle. Speculation. Unidentified individual both drew diagrams of where they saw the vehicle parked and their diagrams generally matched as to the area the vehicle was parked and the manner in which it was parked. The unidentified witnesses advised he remembered seeing a smaller dark colored car parked at the old CPS building. He described it as possibly being a, quote, smart car, end quote. Unidentified witnesses' vehicle is seen leaving at 2.28 p.m. on the Hoosier Harvester video. I guess it's Harvest Store, Har Harvest Store video. Investigators spoke with an unidentified individual who stated that she was traveling east on 300 North on February 13th, 2022, and observed a male subject walking west on the north side of 300 North away from the Monon High Bridge. Unidentified witness advised that the male subject was wearing a blue color jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared he had gotten into a fight. Investigators were able to determine from watching the video from the Hoosier Harvester, H-A-R-V-E-S-T-O-R-E, -E, Harvester store, that an unidentified witness was traveling on County Road 300 North at approximately 3.57 p.m. Through interviews, electronic data, photographs, and video from the Hoosier Harvester investigators determined that there were other people on the trail that day after 2.13 p.m. Those people were unidentified and interviewed, and none of those individuals encountered the male subject reference above, witnessed by the juvenile girls, unidentified witness, and another unidentified witness. Further, none of those individuals witnessed victim one and victim two. Investigators reviewed prior tips encountering a tip narrative 
from an officer who interviewed Richard Allen in 2017. That narrative stated, Mr. Allen was on the trail between 1330 and 1530. So that's 130 and 3:30 PM in the afternoon. He parked at the old farm bureau building and walked to the new freedom bridge. While at the freedom bridge, he saw three females. He noted one was taller and had brown or black hair. He did not remember description, nor did he speak with them. He walked from the Freedom Bridge on the High Bridge. He did not see anybody, although he stated he was watching a stock ticker on his phone as he walked. He stated there were vehicles parked in the High Bridge trail head, however, did not pay attention to them. He did not take any photos or video. His cell phone did not list an IMEI, but did have the following MEID, and then it references that, and then an MEIDHEX with a long number. Potential follow up information who were the three girls walking in the area of Freedom Bridge? That was the note, potential follow up information. Investigators believe Mr. Allen was referring to. Excuse me. Investigators believe Mr. Allen was referring to the former Child Protective Service building as there was not a Farm Bureau building in the area, nor had there been. Investigators believe the female he saw included redacted and redacted due to the time they were leaving the trail, the time he reported getting to the trail and the description of the three the three females gave. Investigators discovered Richard Allen owned two vehicles in 2017, a 2016 black Ford Focus and a 2006 gray Ford 500. Investigators observed a vehicle that resembled Allen's 2016 Ford Focus on the Hoosier Harvester video at 1.27 p.m., traveling westbound on County Road 300 north in front of the Hoosier Harvester, which coincided with his statements that he arrived around 1.30 p.m. at the trails. Investigators note witnesses described the vehicle parked at the former Child Protective Service building as a PT Cruiser, small SUV, or a smart car. Investigators believe those descriptions are similar in nature to the 2016 Ford Focus. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure about that, but that's a leap they're making. On October 13th, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He advised he was on the trails on February 13th of 2017. He stated he saw juvenile girls on the trails east of Freedom Bridge and that he went onto the Monon High Bridge. Richard Allen further stated he went out onto the Monon High Bridge to watch the fish. Later in his statement, he said he walked out to the first platform on the bridge. He stated he then walked back, sat on a bench on the trail, and then left. He stated he parked his car on the side of the old building. He told investigators that he was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. He advised he may have been wearing some type of head covering as well. He further claimed he saw no one else except for the juvenile girls he saw uh, east of the Freedom Bridge. He told investigators that he owns firearms and they are at his home. Richard M. Allen's wife, Kathy Allen, also spoke to investigators. She confirmed that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. She also stated that Richard still owns a blue Carhartt jacket. On October 13th of 2022, investigators executed a search warrant of Richard Allen's residence at 1967 North 
Whitman Drive, Delphi, Carroll County, Indiana. Among other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including a Sig Sauer P226 40 caliber pistol with a serial number of U625627. Between October 14th, 2022 and October 19th, 2022, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis of Allen Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm, function test, barrel, and overall length measurement, test firing ammunition component characteristics, microscopic comparison, and a nibin. The laboratory determined the unspent round located within two feet of the victim number two's body had been cycled through Richard M. Allen Sig Sauer P226. The laboratory remarked, now this is important, an identification opinion is reached when the evidence exhibits an agreement of class characteristics and a sufficient agreement of individual marks. Sufficient agreements is related to the significant duplication of random striated impressed marks as evidenced by the correspondence of a pattern or combination of patterns of surface contours. The interpretation of identification is subjective in nature and based upon relevant scientific research and the reporting examiner's training and experience. What does that really mean? What that means is at some dude's opinion at the lab. Okay, that's important because he states in there, the interpretation of identification is subjective in nature, which means reasonable people could agree. And I guarantee you the defense will find somebody to say, you can't say that that unspent round was cycled through Mr. Allen's Sig Sauer model P226. Investigators um, then ran the firearm and found that the firearm was purchased by Richard Allen in 2001. Richard Allen voluntarily came to the Indiana State Police Post on October 26, 2022. He spoke with investigators and stated that he never allowed anyone to use or borrow the Sig Sauer Model P226 firearm. When asked about the unspent bullet, he did not have an explanation of why the bullet was found between the bodies of victims one and two. He again admitted that he had been on the trail but denied knowing victim one or two and denied any involvement in the murders. Carroll County Sheriff's Department detective, name redacted, has been part of this investigation since it started in 2017. He has not an opportunity to review and examine evidence gathered in this investigation. Detective redacted also, along with other investigators, believe the evidence gathered shows that Richard Allen is the male subject seen on the video from victim two's phone who forced the victim down the hill. Further, that the victims were forced down the hill by Richard Allen and led to the location where they were murdered. Through the statements and photographs of the juvenile females and the statements of unidentified witness and unidentified witness who were at the southeast edge of the trail at 12.43 p.m. east of Freedom Bridge at 1.26 p.m. and walked across the former railroad overpass over Old State Road 25 after 1.26 p.m. and before 1.46 p.m. They walked the entirety of the trail and observed only one person, an adult male. Unidentified vehicle is seen on Hoosier 
Harvester's video at 1.46 p.m. and leaving at 2.14 p.m. And she stated she only saw one adult male, unidentified and unidentified, described the male in similar manner, wearing similar clothing, uh, leading investigators believe all four saw the same male individual. Investigators believe the male observed by unidentified witness and unidentified witness is the same male depicted in the video from victim two's phone due to the description of the male by the four females matching the male in the video. Furthermore, victims two video was taken at 2.13 p.m. and unidentified witness saw only one male while she was on the trail for from approximately 1.46 to 2.14 p.m. Investigators believe Richard Allen was the male seen by unidentified witness and unidentified witness and the male seen in victim two's video. Richard Allen told investigators he was on the trail from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. that day. Video from Hoosier Harvesters shows a vehicle that matches the description of Richard Allen's vehicle passing at 1.27 p.m. toward the former CPS building. The clothing he told investigators he was wearing matched the clothing of the victim in victim two's video and the clothing description provided by unidentified witness and the other unidentified witness. A vehicle matching the description of his 2016 Ford Focus is seen at or around 2.10 p.m., 2.14 p.m., and 2.28 p.m. at the former CPS building. Through his own admissions, Richard Allen walked the trails and eventually hiked the Monon High Bridge and walked out onto the Monon High Bridge. A male subject matching Richard Allen's description was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m. Investigators identified other individuals on the trail or County Road 300 north between 2.30 p.m. and 4.11 p.m. None of those individuals saw a male subject matching the description of Richard Allen on the trail. Furthermore, Richard Allen stated that he only saw three girls on the trail who investigators believed to be redacted. Investigators believe Richard Allen was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m. because he was in the woods with victim one and victim two. An unspent 40 caliber uh, between the bodies of victim one and two was forensically determined to have been cycled through Richard Allen's Sig Sauer model P226. The Sig Sauer model P226 was found at Richard Allen's residence and he admitted to owning it. Investigators were able to determine that he had owned it since 2001. Richard Allen stated he had not been on the property where the unspent round was found, that he did not know the property owner, and that he had no explanation as to why a round cycled through his firearm would be at that location. Furthermore, he stated he never allowed anyone to borrow the Sig Sauer model P226. Investigators believe that after the victims were murdered, Richard Allen returned to his vehicle by walking down County Road 300 North. Investigators believe he was seen by unidentified person walking back to his vehicle on County Road 300 with clothes that were muddy and bloody. Unredacted witness, along with investigators, believe that the statements made by the witnesses because the statements corroborate the timeline of the death of the two victims, as well as coincide with the omissions of Richard Allen. Further, the accounts relayed by unidentified witness and unidentified witness are similar in nature to the timestamps on photographs taken by unidentified person, and they correspond to the times the juvenile females said they were on the trail and saw the male individual.
there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The long-awaited affidavit as it relates to Mr. Richard Allen. A couple of things that jump out at me. First, obviously, Mr. Allen talked to somebody. There were reports of this early on that he had uh, spoken with somebody in law enforcement. And somehow uh, these police officers who concluded in this particular case, who've had the case since 2017, just didn't get around to talking to Mr. Allen until just quite recently. And um, and uh, what's going to be, I think, the determinative factor. I, I'm not so much concerned about the the uh, firearm matching uh, because I think, uh, frankly, that's kind of junk science area uh, in that regard. Uh, what's going to be significant is if there is some additional video that we haven't seen of this individual walking down the bridge. Frank, can we show that video of the person that they show as that they believe to be Richard Allen walking down the bridge? Um, you know, that's that's the video that they have. And we have the audio of person saying down the hill. Um, pretty garbled unless there's a better video, but I would think if there was a better video of that, that the police would have put out the best picture they had to try and find the right person. So five years later, the guy, you know, with married wife, kid home lives in town, no criminal history. Uh, just one day happens to be out on a bridge and decides to shoot two girls for the heck of it. Or apparently, according to the prosecution theory, uh, in an attempt to kidnap them. Now, you have to also remember, you may not be thinking of kidnapping in the sense of, you know, I'm going to uh, take you and drive you away. Most kidnapping statutes uh, describe a kidnapping as movement, however slight. It could be inches, um, something done uh, without somebody's permission. Uh, they didn't want to go. So, I mean, I've seen domestic violence cases where the guy uh, will push somebody into the next room and they're like, oh, that's a kidnapping. Add that on to uh, all the other uh, charges as well. Now, um, as it relates to the firearm, you know, that they say the round was cycled through. And I guess I should have thought ahead because I could have had a demonstrative exhibit here. But I was working on trying to get some work done before I came to do our show this evening. So when you have a semi-automatic weapon, I guess we could maybe take a break and I could run and get it. But basically, when you have a semi-automatic weapon and you load the weapon and the magazine is in the handle, the grip of the uh, firearm, um, and you send the slide home, it sends a round into the chamber. If for some reason someone were to cycle that, maybe there was, there was a jam or something, uh, sliding that uh, slide back on the semi-automatic uh, Sig Sauer would cause the bullet to be extracted and uh, on, sent onto the ground. And um, what they're saying is that their uh, firearm expert, okay, and let's just quickly go through that again because that seems to be was the deciding factor uh, between october 14th this is page five of eight perfect thanks frank 
between October 14th and 22 and October 19th, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on Allen Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm. Physical examination, they looked at it and said, okay, yeah, it looks like it's a Sig Sauer P. No, no obvious damage, no modification, no uh, sanding of the uh, serial numbers off uh, the barrel there or anything like that. Okay. Uh, the classification of a firearm that it was a, you know, uh, a semi-automatic handgun pistol Sig Sauer. Okay. Function test. A function test is nothing more than will this um, firearm function as properly loaded. So what they would do is uh, either put a dummy round in it. Uh, sometimes they just don't even do that, but they would uh, simulate, put a, more likely they put a round in it, a, a dummy round. Even if it's not a dummy round, they could then uh, do a, a function test. But they would then um, put put the uh, uh, piece of uh, ammunition, uh, the ammo, into the magazine, load the ammo in the magazine, pull the slide to the rear, send the bolt home, and then if they had a test tank or if it was a dummy round, they could then fire the round and see if the um, firing pin moved forward, which would strike the uh, end of the uh, bullet, thereby causing you know the firearm to shoot out uh, a, a bullet out the other end. And the reason why they do a function test is one of the things that they have to show um, is that the firearm is functioning right? Normally that comes in in like palpo cases. Somebody has a weapon, a prohibited person in possession of a firearm, and they have to show that it's a functioning firearm. They have to show that it was manufactured after a particular uh, year, subject to the Federal Firearms Act, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a fancy way of saying, yeah, this gun shoots. That's all they have to show uh, when it comes to the function test. They checked out the barrel and overall length to make sure it wasn't some sort of modified weird thing. They test fired it. Uh, the ammunition component characterization. They did a microscopic comparison, which is they would look at, um, basically, they tried to look at the round that was cycled through to see if there was any sort of uh, notching or nick because there's literally a little extractor pin and it kind of grabs that that round and pulls it back and spits it out. That's what they'd be looking for there. So they did a microscopic comparison. They probably cycled it through, said, oh, look, uh, look, there's something maybe similar there. Look at that. And they did a NIBIN, which is basically to see, I can't remember the acronym, but basically it's to see if it was uh, used in some other uh, shooting or something of that nature. <laughs> I, I've had cases where you get the gun, you got the shooting. Next thing you know, you come back, the guns, you know, associated with what they believe to be uh, with multiple um, you know, like attempted murders or murders, i.e. there's shell casings there at the, at the scene. It is as the report stated. Okay. The identification opinion is reached when the evidence exhibits an agreement of class characteristics and a sufficient agreement of individual marks. Basically we look at it on the microscope and say, yeah, is that a match? Yeah, it looks close enough to me. Hey, Bob, come over and take a look at this. Would you take a look at it? You think it matches? Well, those examiners don't ever really second guess somebody because, you know, they don't want to be second guessed. And so they said, yeah, looks close enough for government work. And um, 
they say, okay, close enough. So sufficient agreement in related to the significant duplication of random striation uh, impressed marks as evidenced by the correspondence of a pattern or combination of pattern of surface contours. They're looking at some sort of indentation or something to that effect on the uh, round to see if it duplicates. The interpretation of identification is subjective, okay, which means it's open to interpretation, not objective, like, hey, you looked at it and like, oh, that's what it is. Everybody's going to come to the same conclusion. It's subjective in nature and based upon relevant scientific research and the reporting examiner's training and experience. See, here's the thing. You normally don't run off to get your big certifications as a uh, firearms examiner. It comes as um, training and experience. There's a couple of organizations that all the police examiners become a member of. And if you read the fine print, you usually see that you pay your money and uh, you get your certification and maybe you attend a seminar or something along the way. But normally it's through a training uh, process. It's kind of like fingerprint analysis. Very subjective. Ooh, does that ridge look like, yeah, close enough for me. Yeah, we, we're pretty certain that's it. Close enough for government work. Try to find a uh, examiner to uh, second guess on fingerprints. Nearly impossible. Very small click. They've all trained under one another. Because like I said, you don't run out to the store uh, or the college and get a fingerprint examiner. It's all Hey, I'm going to, I think that I'm tired of working on the streets. I'd like to be a, a crime scene investigator. Can I work in the uh, fingerprint unit? That's what they do. Um, firearms, people usually have a strong desire. They like firearms. They're very interested in firearms. Uh, but I'm telling you, um, it's very subjective. And they usually can say, yeah, this comes from this. And if there was a bullet that actually been fired, they could say, oh, look at the striations. That's it. Normally, that would just narrow it down. And they're like, well, this could come from six different types of firearms. Okay. <laughs> I once had a case where they said, well, it could have been uh, manufactured from three different manufacturers. And so you look up and say, okay, that particular firearm that they think this is consistent with, three different manufacturers, mind you, how many firearms from those three manufacturers were manufactured? Oh, like, you know, 250,000 of them. I mean, there's some manufacturers out there that just make garbage guns. You can pick them up uh, for you know, literally a few hundred bucks. They go for even less on the street. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's garbage. Okay. And you may say, well, Scott, man, they've got the guy there. And, and I would like to hope. And let's just say, like I said, we don't know. We got to give Mr. Allen the presumption of innocence as any of us would want if we were sitting in his chair. If we were his family member, we would want the presumption of innocence to go to this guy. Okay? Because I'm telling you, this, this is not overwhelming evidence. It really is not. Now, I hope the police have something more. Now, you remember the prosecutor said at the hearing on November 22nd, Mr. Allen could have not worked. You know, uh, there could be other suspects. Oh, wow, that's funny. I didn't see any of that in here. I also didn't see in the affidavit 
all the other leads that the police thought they were certain that they were hot on. And then it turned out to not be exactly what it was. Oh, remember that Keegan Klein guy? Oh yeah. I remember I got his transcript right here. Got his transcript right here where they're saying, we know, you know, who's involved. We know you didn't do it, but you know, you were texting this young lady. Where's all that in the affidavit? Normally, that uh, should be considered. Now, <coughs> it doesn't take a whole long to do a lot of research, and I've done this research in the past, and I've fired, hired firearm experts, and good ones will tell you, yeah, I really can't uh, tell you a lot that you oftentimes want to hear, whether it's for the prosecution or for the defense. Um, but it's generally accepted, I think, out there that firearms do not always leave unique markings on the ammunition, which is fired through the gun. Um, and this one wasn't even fired. It was it was cycled through. And maybe for our Patreon show, I will quickly grab a demonstrative aid uh, to explain that. Um, and it's uncertain if rounds were recovered from these two girls um, and whether if they weren't damaged enough, whether they could try to tell uh, through striation, you know, the marks left going through the firearm, uh, through the rifling and striations, uh, whether it's those were from that same gun. Once again, I would think if that was evidence that they, Indiana State Police possessed, they would have put that in the affidavit. Um, once again, uh, so the practice of comparative ballistic silence is highly subjective and provides ample opportunity for bias. Like, hey, man, the heat is on. Going on five, six years here with no break in the case. We've got no clue. We overlooked this guy that apparently people were talking about. And, I mean, with all due respect, but if they have a witness who says they see a guy in the area on the date that these two girls are cured, killed, they think he's covered in blood, and they don't go try to run down these cars, you know, which he doesn't have any one of the cars that were in that particular description. I mean, I'd like to see the video uh, that they have there at that Hoosier uh, store there. Um, um, remember, the ballistic fingerprints of a firearm uh, can anyway be changed over its lifetime. An effective national ballistic imaging database is not feasible as the variables of ballistic fingerprints are too great. And the possibility of false matches multiply with the size of the ballistic imaging database. This raises the specter of miscarriage of justice, particularly among the poorest of the poor. And the cost-benefit ratio of a national ballistic imaging database is exceptionally high. Too much for the cost-benefit analysis. But the reality of it is, it's subjective. It's what they refer to as squishy science. And um, there's been a real push. I'll try to have some information for you on later shows um, where there's been attacks as it relates to um, the FBI National Firearms Lab, uh, basically saying it's kind of junk science. And to say, well, that firearm was cycled through that gun. I'm telling you, Sig Sauer mass produces firearms. They mass produce them up there in, I believe it's Connecticut. Okay. It's a German company. Uh, and don't get me wrong. They sell lots of six hours. Their high end stuff is pretty good. There's a couple that, you know, 
not a big fan of. I've had some cases with them. Um, but, you know, Sig Sauer, they mass produce these things, mass produce them. Um, and they're all made from the same uh, machining devices. It's not like it was individually made, you know, 80 years ago. The manufacturing is so much better these days. You can stamp these items that even under microscope, they're not going to look different. You can say, ah, that's the specific characteristic of that particular firearm. Like I said, I, I've known, I've worked with armorers and firearms experts that have their own database. They can say, oh, this is what this particular firearm looks like. This is, but you can't tell. I mean, it, it's, it's very nuanced and it's very, very subjective. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see. We will have to wait and see. As Trish Norman notes, so all the guns in that series should show relative characteristics. Yes, that's the point. So when the attorneys for Mr. Allen came out after the hearing and said, hey, we've seen that affidavit, frankly, it's a little underwhelming. I agree. I agree. I am not convinced. They got enough to get probable cause. Okay. But remember, the defense doesn't have to prove Mr. Allen innocent. The prosecution must prove him guilty. Um, simply being at the scene of a crime is not sufficient evidence in and of itself to convict somebody. In fact, sometimes you can actually get an instruction to that effect. So even if you're like standing at a homicide and somebody else does it, just being there isn't evidence of guilt in and of itself. Um, so I think the prosecution, I don't know. Um, I, if I were them, I'd want this kept secret as well. Uh, because a lot of people are going to be looking at this saying, I think this is flimsy. Uh, Frank, let's put up the different sketches that they, they put up in that of Mr. Allen. And it'll be interesting because he puts himself near the general area. And if he was in fact, um, the guy that did this, I mean, he obviously talked to police and came forward. It's not like they went to talk to him. He talked to them, as I understand it, and said, hey, I was in that area. I was there. I'm not going to dispute that. In fact, that's what I'm telling you guys. He doesn't run. He doesn't say, you know what, honey? I hear Florida or Costa Rica is nice this time of year. We should just, uh, you know, head out, change a pace. Let's do something new. And oh, by the way, I think I'll keep this firearm if it's supposedly used in my house versus, I don't know, maybe disassembling it and tossing it into various uh, large bodies of water somewhere over the last five years. Like I said, I don't know. We are going to have to wait and see. We like to pride ourselves on bringing you facts as they present themselves. That's why we went through the affidavit. I know there's going to be a lot of different channels out there that are going to go down some crazy, bizarre things. Some are going to say he's totally innocent. Some are going to say he's totally guilty. The gun is too much a coincidence. He was there. I get it. But, um, you know, are there coincidences? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Um, he puts himself there. But I think uh, I wouldn't hang too much... Um, evidence on that evidence uh, uh, coat rack there as it relates to uh, uh, firearms experts. Just saying, just saying. Um, 
color me skeptical. I may be wrong. And if I am, I will say so. But like I said, we're going to give him a, uh, we're going to uh, give him a, uh, uh, the presumption of innocence and we will go from there. Wow. Can you believe that it has already been an hour, which is our normal show that we do uh, every Tuesday night? So I want to thank everybody for joining us this evening. If you'd like to continue the conversation and we will have um, our call-in portion of our Patreon show as well. And I'm going to run down the hall and get myself a demonstrative aid to explain why you should not be that. um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Overwhelmed by the firearms expert uh, opinion, because that's what it is. It's an opinion. It's not scientific. It's an opinion. Okay. So thanks for watching. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you learned something here tonight. Uh, We will uh, go to our Patreon show. Hope to see you all there in uh, just a couple of minutes. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.